Quick, who is that composer? I don't know that you would think Aaron Copeland right away. I don't know that that name would leap to mind, but it is in fact Aaron Copeland, a piece called Connotations from 1962 that was written in the 12-tone technique and commissioned by Leonard Bernstein. Welcome to Relevant Tones. I'm Seth Bostead, and this is the third in a three-part program talking about the influence of two major, major figures in 20th century music, Stravinsky and Schoenberg. In the first program, I talked about the Rite of Spring from 1913. We are, of course, in the 100th year anniversary of that great piece, and I traced its influence from 1913 all the way down to the present day. And then in the second show, I talked about a piece from the year before, 1912, Schoenberg's Great Pierrot Lunaire, a very, very different kind of piece, a very different kind of revolution in music. And I traced the influence of that, which would develop eventually into so-called serial music, 12-tone music, um, again, all the way down to the present day. And I talked about the uh, so-called uptown and downtown divide in New York, which kind of came about in the late 60s, early 70s, and still exists to this day. And uh, in my mind, uptown music is a direct outgrowth of the Schoenberg School of Thought and downtown music a direct outgrowth of the Stravinsky School of Thought. So we have these two major, major figures in music that are um, really creating almost an unbreachable divide, philosophically speaking. Well, seemingly unbreachable. <laughs> in this, the third of the three shows, I'm going to be talking about composers who either tried to broker a truce between the two sides or who maybe went a, a completely different direction entirely or uh, who we think of as being in one of the camps but kind of dabbled in the other a little bit. In fact, Stravinsky himself, uh, who we think of as, of course, the antithesis of Schoenberg, wrote some 12-tone music later on in his career. And uh, it really shows how strong the 12-tone ideology was. I mean, people really, really believed that Schoenberg was on the right side of history, that this was what was going to stand the test of time. And uh, guys like Copeland, Bernstein, Stravinsky, they started to think to themselves, you know, it's been around three or four decades now. Maybe there's something to this. If nothing else, at least it gives me some new possibilities. When Dylan Thomas died, Stravinsky was really broken up about it. He was, of course, a fantastic poet and just happened to be one of Stravinsky's favorite poets. And so he wrote a piece called In Memoriam Dylan Thomas. And uh, it's not a 12-tone piece, but he does use a tone row, which is a permutation of the 12-tone idea where you can use a lesser number of tones, but they're still structured. So in this case, it's a five-tone row, and we're going to hear that stated in the brass in the very beginning. And some permutation or other of this row will be throughout the entire piece. Let's have a listen to Stravinsky's setting of the very famous poem, Do Not Go Gentle Into That Good Night. This is Pierre Boulez and Robert Tier with Ensemble Intercontemporain.
We heard Robert Tier, tenor, singing Do Not Go Gentle Into That Good Night, text by Dylan Thomas, in fact, from the piece In Memoriam Dylan Thomas by Igor Stravinsky. That was Pierre Belez leading the ensemble Intercontemporain. So here we have Stravinsky, the, the, the sort of titan of, of anti-serialism, <laughs> writing a serial piece. Of course, Schoenberg by this point is safely dead, but it shows that Stravinsky is willing to try new styles. It also shows, I think, his uh, incredible fluidity at taking a new style and still making it his own. It's still very Stravinskyan, and um, I think you know it's a hallmark of the downtown scene, also of music that uh, they're really open to new ideas. They feel that, that their form can definitely absorb other things and still remain its own, whereas uh, the Schoenberg model is a little more inflexible. It's a little more dogmatic. Um, it's very cognizant of its place in history. Um, those are very different philosophical divides, and we hear that. So 1953, 1962, in the case of Copeland, we have these composers that are definitely saying there's something to this serialism. We're going to uh, investigate it and see what it's all about. Bernstein, at the same time, was uh, making some of the same conclusions. And although I don't think personally he liked 12-tone music at all, um, you know, he was enough of an egalitarian that he was open to it. And he would program them on the New York Phil concerts and his, his uh, chamber music recitals. The um, connotations was actually commissioned by Bernstein. So he definitely was aware of 12-tone music. And I think was one of these people definitely trying to broker a truce between the two. Elliot Carter, on the other hand, uh, was definitely very active at this time. I don't think he, he much cared <laughs> one way or the other. He was always very much a, a fierce individualist, but he thought maybe as a kind of an intellectual puzzle, it would be fun to write a piece in which one of the instruments was in the style of Stravinsky and one in the style of Schoenberg. Let's have a listen to the first movement, the Moderato of the Cello Sonata, in which Stravinsky is represented in the piano and Schoenberg in the cello. We're going to hear Joel Krosnick on the cello, accompanied by Gilbert Kalish on piano. Thank you. 
playful piece there, at least from an ideological point of view by Elliot Carter. That is where he has the piano kind of in the style of Stravinsky and the cello in the style of Schoenberg, which you can definitely hear in those angular lines, the big jumps, the complex rhythms. We heard the moderato movement from his cello sonata, Joel Krasnick performing on cello and Gilbert Kalish piano. This was written in 1948 when uh, serialism was uh, just becoming, you know, in, into the apex of its power, which would last at least uh, another 20-some-odd years, 25 years or so. And uh, so I think Elliot Carter was uh, very aware of what he was doing, referencing these two composers, very aware that they had seemingly insoluble differences. And I do think there is some sly humor in that piece. Uh, so by 1962, as we know, Copeland himself is now dabbling in serial music. So it is uh, pretty much the dominant form of music. And if you're a composer at all, especially of this older generation like Copeland, and you want to stay relevant, then you are definitely going to be writing a little bit in the 12-tone style. But 10 years later, by 1972, there are definitely some cracks in the facade that are showing up. George Rockberg, a very famous composer at the time, a person with absolutely impeccable serial credentials, had been writing serial music for many years, completely defected from the camp and very publicly. His third string quartet not only is uh, very, very tonal and um, you know completely flies in the face of this idea that serialism is the only way to go, but it's also modeled after Beethoven quartets. The blasphemy of it was uh, just <laughs> unbelievable, and he, he was denounced in very, very harsh terms, but uh, there was a tragic reason behind it. His son had died, and um, you know, very young, and he was, uh, needless to say, upset about it. And he felt that modernism and atonal music, with its angularities and very difficult harmonies, could not adequately express the grief that he felt. But he hadn't ever really written tonal music before. He cut his teeth as a serial composer, so he looked back to the past, I think, very naturally. And he also said that after World War One and Two, he, he thought that humankind had been through so much that we had lost a kind of innocence. And so he wanted to go back before the wars to the music of Brahms and Beethoven and draw his inspiration from that. Let's listen to an excerpt of Movement 3. Again, these are in the style of the Beethoven quartets, and we have the Concord String Quartet performing.
When that work first was premiered, Donal Henahan in the New York Times said, Mr. Rockberg's quartet is, how did we used to put it? Beautiful. It is one of the rare new works that go past collage and quotation into another, fairer land. We heard the variations from the third string quartet of George Rockberg, performed by the Concord String Quartet. This is a piece where a very uh, known serial composer turned his back on serialism after a, a personal tragedy and uh, returns to tonality, and not just tonality, but to classical forms. But it's not neoclassicism. Uh, it was never called neoclassicism, partly, I think, because it was a defection um, and partly because Rockberg, unlike Stravinsky, is not using these older forms for inspiration. He's using these older forms almost as spiritual guidance, as therapy to get him past this, this essential crisis. And that's something that has to be remembered with uh, serial music, is that the rhetoric was so strong, so harsh, that composers like Rockberg who found themselves caught in the middle of this, I mean, you know, they, they really needed therapy. They went through... Very, very difficult times. Um, Bernstein himself was, was really torn up about it, that this was clearly the way that the, the, the musical universe was going and that he was out of step with it. Um, such a, a throwback to the past, and again, uh, a very beautiful work now, very much controversial in its time, and shows the cracks in the facade. Serialism maybe, maybe isn't going to be the dominant musical language forever. You're listening to Relevant Tones, a show featuring the music of contemporary composers. This is the third in a three-part series examining the colossal influence of 20th century modernists Stravinsky and Schoenberg. You can find out more information about the program on Facebook or at our website, relevanttones.com. So we have these two composers, Stravinsky and Schoenberg. They uh, represent two halves of an ideological divide and uh, seems to be insoluble. But of course, we are listening to some composers like uh, Aaron Copland, who um, was on one side, but then kind of dabbles on the other. Stravinsky himself, we heard, dabbles on the other. So we know that, that uh, anytime there's a divide, there's going to be people that, um, that, that jump camps or that try to broker a truce between them, or like I said, who uh, go their own way entirely. And I think there's no greater example of a composer who went his own way than John Cage. And uh, he's often thought about in the downtown scene, but I think that's hardly doing him justice because he's, he's really more than a musician. He's a philosopher. And uh, already in 1951, he was very much looking for a new idea. And he and a lot of other composers rejected both of these ideas that Schoenberg and Stravinsky had, that Western music had to do this, or that it should go back to the past, it should push forward inexorably. Forget about Western music entirely. What's, uh, what else is available? What's going on in, say, the Eastern Hemisphere, for example? And so these composers were very interested in China and Asia. And John Cage especially was interested in the I Ching, which is like a personal fortune-telling system in China. You uh, have a series of hexagrams that have a lot of different meanings, and then you devise which hexagrams are going to have meaning for you at any given moment through chance, through the casting of yarrow stalks or through um, the rolling of dice, anything like that that can yield numbers, which you then line up with the hexagrams to give you your fortune. Cage thought it would be a great idea to use this approach to make music. And so in 1951, he writes book one of Music of Changes. The performer is instructed to basically create the piece using the I Ching. He does um, dictate a lot of musical parameters. Uh, there might be, for example, trills. We're going to hear trills. There might be uh, the, the dynamics, the uh, durations of the notes, the extremes of the register. All of this are the parameters. He doesn't dictate how they work until you actually create them with the I Ching. Let's listen to two different performers playing the music of changes so you can hear just exactly how different this can be. Let's start with Tanya Chen.
That was Tanya Chen performing a little bit of the Music of Changes, Book One by John Cage. Again, the performer is instructed to create the piece using the I Ching, so it's completely chance-derived. Let's have a listen to another interpretation by pianist Joseph Kubera. Two versions of Music of Changes by John Cage. We heard Joseph Kubera, and before that, Tanya Chen. That's the same piece, but the performers are instructed to create their parts using the I Ching. And so we did hear a lot of similarities there. There are some trills. There are some other things that um, are perhaps similar. But again, that's only because the parameters have been defined by Cage ahead of time. The parts will never be the same by any pianist. Um, I think it's interesting, too, that, of course, this is going to be atonal. I mean, there's no way it's going to have any kind of tonal hierarchy if it's based on chance. Not that Cage cared about tonal or atonal. But it's interesting to me that it sounds uh, so similar to the very rigorously structured atonal pieces of the serial movement. So John Cage is looking to China, uh, definitely trying to get outside of this Western idea. He had, he had the uh, the insight that this whole divide, this whole argument, this, this tempest in a teapot, if you will, was uh, really just a, only a, an argument within Western music. And there's so much else going on in the world. Another composer, George Crumb, I think is, is a very interesting example of someone who doesn't quite fit. He's, he's not on either side of the divide. Whereas I think John Cage had this uh, really interesting insight that uh, th this divide, this argument, is, is really a, a relatively small deal because it's only happening within the Western Hemisphere of music. And, you know, there's this whole other part of the world <laughs> that's thinking otherwise. With Crumb, it's a more personal journey. Uh, you know, in many ways, his music is very meticulously structured. And so you could say that he belongs to the Schoenberg European tradition. But his sound world is so unique, so imaginative, so inventive that I think he's really his own composer. He grew up in Pennsylvania, and he grew up in a, in a river valley. And he said that as a young boy, he would hear these amazing sounds at night from his bedroom and down on the river. Uh, you'd hear boats going by, you know, you hear animals, you hear all kinds of things. And he has this very powerful imagination. So I want you to just envision this gifted, imaginative child in, in his bedroom, hearing these sounds, looking out his window perhaps at the river, full moon, a little bit of fog in the air, all these sounds being blown up in his mind. I think he captures this perfectly in ancient voices of children. Let's have a listen.
That was El Niño Busca Su Voz, or The Child Searches for His Voice, from Ancient Voices of Children by George Crumb. We heard Jan Degatani, joined by boy soprano Michael Dash, and the Contemporary Chamber Ensemble with Arthur Weisberg conducting. Very typical George Crumb there, the sound world that he evokes. As I said before we listen to it, there's always this sense of reverb, or as I think of it, spatial depth. It can be created by drawing your finger across the top of a crystal. It can be created through electronic means. Uh, He can do these white, noisy sounds by drawing the bow very lightly across the strings. But they're in every one of his pieces. And again, I think that comes from having grown up on this in this river valley and and always hearing these sounds, boats far away, fog horns, and just the kind of uh, general heavy feel of that river valley that's very sonically present in his music. Wonderful example of Crumb, and uh, what a wonderful composer who definitely searched within to find his own voice, did not embrace either of these uptown or downtown streams that we're talking about in this show. We're going to go in a completely different direction here. This is actually a stream of thought that arose around the 70s or 80s. These were the so-called midtown composers. They were not uptown or downtown. They're also called neo-romantics because they often look to the past. Uh, for their inspiration, and I think because they were writing lyrical melodies, and as we heard in the Rockberg, people had to learn to uh, use those old words like beautiful again because the music had not been beautiful. It had been uh, very academically structured prior to that, and so all of a sudden composers are writing lyrical melodies again, um, you know, very, very singable lines, and so uh, people think, oh, that that sounds like romantic music from the past. It must be neo-romantic, but I, I don't think that's quite a fair assessment. I think these composers simply had melodies in their hearts and in their minds, and this is the music that they heard, and so that's what they wrote. The first composer I want to play is Ellen Toff Zwilich, a very accomplished composer and a perfect example of this so-called neo-romanticism. Let's listen to the first movement of her piano trio. This is the Kalkstein Laredo Robinson Trio performing.
That was the first movement of Piano Trio by Ellen Toft Zwillich. I think a great example of the so-called neo-romantic or midtown music. We heard the Kalikstein Laredo Robinson Trio performing. The midtown music is uh, music of composers who don't embrace either the uptown or the downtown, although I, I don't really see it that way. I think they just wanted to write lyrical, beautiful music. And um, again, after Rockberg's third string quartet, which we heard earlier on in the program, after he broke from serialism so publicly and uh, later on had success with it, I, th- I think he, he really opened it up for people. They said, you know what? I am a lyrical composer. I want to write melodic music, and now I can. So that's a great service that Rockberg did to allow people the freedom to, to discover their own voices and to express themselves in their own voices and not to feel that they have to subscribe to any one academic trend or movement in music. Well, to end up this third show in a three-part series, I thought it would be fun to reference the first show a little bit. As you may recall, I opened up the first program with Stravinsky's Rite of Spring, and that was the piece that really exploded the possibilities of classical music with these incredible rhythms, the the primitivism, the use of Russian folktales for inspiration. 
I want to now play a piece by Joan Tower called Petrushkates, which references a piece that Stravinsky wrote right before the Rite of Spring called Petrushka. We're going to hear the same kinds of ideas here, the, the rhythmic vitality, changing time signatures, things tied over bar lines. You have no idea what uh, meter you're ever in, um, but it adds to this shimmering quality in the music. Let's have a quick listen to Petrushka by Stravinsky so we have a reference point. Okay, that's a little bit of Petrushka by Stravinsky. Now let's have a listen to the same kind of music in the hands of Joan Tower here for Chamber Ensemble. This is Chicago's own 8th Blackbird performing.
What a great performance there. Such vital rhythmic music by Joan Tower. We heard Eighth Blackbird performing Petrush Skates. And Joan Tower is one of these composers who's uh, thought of as midtown, so to speak, uh, sometimes neo-romantic, a uh, composer that did not embrace either of the two streams that I've been talking about. But I wanted to end with that piece because we did talk about several composers who kind of moved over to the Schoenberg camp, including Stravinsky himself. So I thought it'd be fun to, uh, to showcase a composer like Joan Tower, who has her own style, but here is uh, paying homage to one of her great influences, Igor Stravinsky. Over the course of these three shows, I've talked about uh, the events of 1913 and 1912, the Rite of Spring and Schoenberg's Perot Lenaire, respectively, and then what incredible influences they had on so many composers. And we traced that influence all the way down to the modern era. And it's so fascinating to think of those events 100 years ago and uh, how they changed over time, how they influenced so many people. And I don't think even Stravinsky and Schoenberg themselves could possibly have imagined the incredible shadow that they would cast, the legacy that they were creating. But the next hundred years, I think in, in so many ways uh, we owe to those two composers and those two years. It's also fascinating to think that right now composers are writing pieces that will probably cast the same kind of shadow for the next hundred years to come. I wonder who they are. Relevant Tones is produced by Jesse McCorders at WFMT with special thanks to Seth Kelly and Jonas Kramer. For more information about the program and the artists we've featured, you can find us on Facebook or visit our website at relevanttones.com. Relevant Tones is made possible by the generous support of Grosvenor Capital Management, the Aaron Copeland Fund for Music, an anonymous donor, DePaul University, and the listener supporters of the WFMT Fine Arts Circle. I'm Seth Bostead, and thanks for listening.